Welcome to the Richard Roper Podcast. Lots to talk about today. We've got the controversy with the true detective, Night Country, season four. Some unseemly displays by the creator of the show. Uh, we're going to talk about some strange rules in the world of sports. Uh, Jimmy Kimmel might be hanging it up from the late night game and reviews. We've got all of that and much, much more. But first, here's your reminder. The Richard Roper Show is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. The digital landscape is changing rapidly. And to compete in today's online business environment, you need an experienced partner. Since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes, offering web design, web development, e-commerce, mobile apps, and digital marketing. All of that to help drive your overall business's success because they believe that today's online world is your what? online opportunity that's americaneagle.com visit americaneagle.com to get started today thanks to americaneagle.com let's get into this whole thing with true detective uh, that's been uh, kind of taking place over eh, the last uh, week or so not something that usually happens when you get this sort of uh, public disavowing uh, by the creator of the show uh, so the backdrop here is that True Detective, which was created uh, about 10 years ago by Nick Pizzolatto, he left the series after after the first three seasons, which have been spread out over you know the last decade or so, to go pursue other things. That meant that they'd have to find somebody new. So True Detective Night Country was created by Issa Lopez, Stars uh, two-time Oscar winner Jodie Foster and the boxer-turned-actor Kelly Reese. And it's all about this the mysterious murder of an indigenous Alaskan woman. And then there's uh, kind of a thing that happens at this uh, science station that's reminiscent of the thing. Listen, you can get my review and a million other reviews, but go to my review at sometimes.com. I really, really enjoyed season four. I thought it was probably the best since season one. There were some callbacks to the first season, but all four of these true detective uh chapters are intended to be standalone works and if you'll check rotten tomatoes true detective night country as the official title is called it, it's doing great uh with critics but there were some folks on social media uh the finale aired about a week ago the series finale and a lot of people on social media and we should preface this by saying that just because a lot of people on social media were upset doesn't mean that's indicative or representative of the millions upon millions of people who watched the show. I think it did uh, the best numbers that any true detective has done, at least uh, better than the last couple of years. But some folks thought it was, um, you know, it, it had some sort of uh, certain plot points that weren't really resolved, some callbacks that weren't really totally explained. Uh, it got into some other, you know, strange territory. Yeah, well, you know, it did. I thought the ending was brilliant and satisfying. And yeah, it went into some bizarre uh, territory. So have other seasons of True Detective. Evidently, for sure, uh, Nick Pizzolatto, again, uh, Nick is the, uh, Nick Pizzolatto is the creator of the show. Uh, he's still on the, on the credits as an executive producer, but this is one of those things where, and so is Matthew McConaughey, in fact, Listen, that means they're going to get some money out of this. They had nothing to do with it. So people on Instagram were complaining about how the finale played out. And Pizzolatto started uh, retweeting these things or reposting them, I guess you'd say, on Instagram. You don't retweet on Instagram. You repost, uh, you know, fans saying it was a hot mess and it butchered and misappropriated the first season's uh, dialogue and things like that. Listen, 
we've been through this many, many times with series finales, whether it's just a, a limited series like True Detective Night Country or, you know, something like Game of Thrones, which infamously has been torn apart by people who are still mad and bruised and triggered by the ending, even though I'm, I didn't think it was that bad. Actually, it was time time to move on from the series. But anyway, people get so worked up. And one of the things I've talked about through the years is even if you didn't like the finale of a series, if you liked everything up to it, you didn't waste your time. You know, listen, Larry David would be the first to tell you that the uh, Seinfeld series finale wasn't exactly perfect. That doesn't get in the way of me enjoying reruns of previous episodes. But if you didn't like it, you didn't like it. That's your right. And, you you know, you've got your reasons. That's okay, too. Um, but it's very unusual for the creator of the series to do this, to repost other criticisms. And uh, he even... Uh, you know, expanded on that and said, I had nothing to do with this show, so don't blame me. Then there was, of course, the inevitable backlash against the backlash. So then Pizzolatto went on Instagram and uh, said, true detective aggregate post. This here is the place for all your trolling, supporting, infighting around true detective and the absolute moral degeneracy and misogyny of anyone who did not think it was good. So he's being sarcastic there, saying he's the worst. Uh, personal world. then he does mention something that and we this does this always gets to me because i can't believe people get this worked up over television show he does say let's move these screeds off my post about my wife and my father's deaths he mentions that uh, my wife my true love and my father's death let's not talk about that i'd say stay civil but of course civility has no place when criticism of a television show indicates some form of hitlerian evil that must be stamped out so roll on tide, satire is welcome, and do try to have a nice day. There's a lot to unpack there. So obviously, uh, people have come back at Nick Pizzolatto and said, you're, you know, you're being misogynist or whatever. And then he, I think, makes the mistake you never want to make when you're invoking Hitler, even if people are saying horrible things about your family. And, you know, if you're, if you're again, if you're, whether it's you know empty death threats that are still super ugly or getting into personal posts about people's families because you don't like what they posted that is bad news and terrible stuff but now all of a sudden he's saying you know i'm a form of victim here and people are engaging in hitlerian evil and then he tries to get satirical again and i would think that overall the best path for Pizzolatto would have been to keep his mouth shut throughout this. If he if he found the season four, if he found True Detective Night Country to be not in keeping with his with his vision, then listen, he created a, a brilliant series. To me, it's like your name is still on as an executive producer. You've moved on, and I, you know, bitching private about, but I think to go after again, I think you know some very talented people, including the creator of the show of uh, this season. And the unquestionably brilliant Jodie Foster. I, I guess he's not going after the acting. He's going after the writing, okay? It just seems to, I don't know, maybe it brings more attention and has more people watching True Detective Night Country. To me, it's bad form. It's something you don't usually see. There are certain kind of unspoken rules in Hollywood. Once in a while, stuff like this leaks out. Uh, you don't talk about who you originally wanted for a film, but then you cast somebody else. That gets out sometimes. Actors don't usually talk about um, turning down roles that went to other actors. Sometimes down the road, they will. You know, John Travolta was up for a lot of roles that Richard Gere ended up taking, including uh, uh, An Officer and a Gentleman and I think American Gigolo. We're talking, you know, back in the 80s. 
And, you know, you don't, you know, dump on a work that a colleague has done that someone has, you know, inherited your series. And if you, if you listen, if you wanted to have that much control and say over it, then stick with the fucking show. So that's that. That's the controversy there. I, if you haven't checked out uh, True Detective, first of all, I think you should go back and watch the, the initial run with Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson. Uh, it was brilliant television. The next two kind of middling results, but I thought this one was was really, really excellent. I'd be curious to hear what you have to say about it. That's our rant there, if you will, about True Detective and the controversy there. I want to go back and, and talk about this uh, thing that happened at the Genesis Invitational which uh, is not a convention for fans of Genesis, the Peter Gabriel or uh, Phil Collins versions. It's not the Genesis Invitational. That's a car. Genesis is a car. You probably knew that. And, um, well, one of the golf tournaments that kicks off the season. I'm not a huge, I'm I'm the world, one of the world's worst golfers, pretty good at the miniature golf. I can get right through that windmill and smack that clown and do all that kind of stuff. But I I've golfed a few times and I haven't golfed in years. I've got a few friends who are great, uh, great golfers and some who are pretty good recreational golfers. And one thing I've, I've seen that's consistent with all golfers is you have to golf a lot that you lose a lot off the fastball or your driver or your wedge, if you will, if you don't golf all the time. And it's a huge investment in time. I have no problem with that. I play poker a lot. People think that's crazy. It's not for me, but I do like watching, especially I'm one of those Sunday viewers, especially, uh, if it's a if a really tight match, uh, I, I love the Netflix documentary that followed some of the golfers around. They are incredibly skilled practitioners of their sport. And it is amazing because when you think about it with golf and obviously with tennis and singles, but, you know, it's one against 100, you know, and there are on any given Sunday, 30 or 40 golfers who are probably good enough to win. And then there's the elite of the elite, but the pressure and the backstory is always interesting, especially if it's a hometown guy playing on his course or, or someone who hasn't won a, a big championship. Anyway, the Genesis Invitational, Jordan Spieth, who is one of the top golfers in the game. Maybe you heard or read about this. This is crazy to me. So Jordan Spieth was disqualified for signing an incorrect scorecard. And uh, this incident has renewed debate about the whole controversy and the and the whole tradition, if you will, of you know the golfers have to sign their scorecards, right? And it has they have to make sure it's right. They have the little pencil you see them, uh, you know, verifying their scores. So what happened was Spieth confirmed that he had he he admitted this. He signed for a par three on the fourth hole, but it actually made bogey. Nobody in the world is saying that Jordan Spieth was trying to cheat. It's on television. This stuff is recorded. There are thousands of people watching. But if you sign an incorrect scorecard, you are disqualified. Now, Jordan Spieth, yeah, you know, he took it very well. He said, rules are rules. I take full responsibility. He even tweeted on Sunday to some of the golfers who were in contention, make sure you sign the correct scorecard. Scotty Scheffler, who might be the best golfer in the world right now, weighed in saying he goes through a detailed process each time he heads into the scoring area. He checks his scores. Then the official plugs the hole-by-hole scores into the computer. Then you can leave and you sign your card and everything. You know, here's the thing. If a guy hits a, an RBA double in baseball, he doesn't have to sign a scorecard about it. You know, if you if you hit a three or you score 47 points in an NBA game, you don't then have to sign the scorecard. I think this is nuts. I, I, you know, what? I guess it's a tra- tradition that goes back to the honor system. Because if you're playing with friends, you know, you do have to keep score, just like you do in bowling. Although bowling now, of course, a lot of it's automated. I think it's insane in this day and age that if someone innocently signs an incorrect scorecard, they can be disqualified. There was even a famous case 
30 or 40 years ago where a guy would have won the tournament, but he got, I think, a two-stroke penalty, and he was disqualified. Uh, it's nuts. Change the rule. There's no point to it. You can have all the other traditions of golf, and, you know, there's all kinds of stuff about when the ball goes in the rough, and if you do a drop, or, or if you want to put your leg in the water and try to shoot play on and all that shit, it's kind of interesting. But the idea that uh, an incorrect scorecard should get you disqualified is not so when there are much better ways to keep score. Now, my my friends over at Barstool Sports, Hubs is the byline. So I want to give Hubs credit on this. Uh, he went into some detail about some of the other dopey rules in sports. He mentioned using the chain gang to measure first downs in football. It's pretty crazy. If you look up uh, on Google, if you Google photos from the 30s and the 40s, of college and professional football you see these dudes with those the chain gang guys with the posts and the little little chain link thing and they're still doing that that's that's nuts and you know it's all about you know where the ref spots the ball you can challenge that now but you know there's got to be a way you can put a little electronic device in a football and on the uh little tracking chip or whatever on the field and either the guy made the first down or the touchdown or not same thing they mentioned hobbs mentions uh hubs sorry hob hubs hubsy Talks about how the refs run to the middle of the field on plays at the goal line, then look at each other and guess if the ball crossed the plane. There are great replays now and all these multiple angles. That helps a lot. Uh, but still, it is kind of strange. Same thing with punts that go out of bounds. All of a sudden, you see the ref running like eight yards up the sideline. They should be able to tell exactly where the punt went out of bounds. Uh, Hubs mentions a baseball rule, and I agree with this too. This is the uh, the ground rule double. Okay, so if you're on first base and you're running with the pitch, and a guy has a double down the line, and it bounces into the stands. Even if you're two feet from home plate, they make you go back to third. I would think that you could figure this out. If you're more than halfway home, when the ball goes out of play, the run should count. Uh, going back to football, it's a rule that we saw uh, take place during the playoffs or be enacted, come into play. Uh, when you're When you're going for the touchdown and you fumble through the end zone, it's a safety. It's not... The other team gets the ball just because you were, you know, diving for the pylon. They didn't recover the fumble, but if it goes through the end zone, it's a safety. To me, if it, if you fumble and it goes through the end zone, I think you should get the ball on the one-yard line. Am I crazy? Another rule. This one, uh, Hubsies. I don't mind this one, Hubs. Uh, in college football, you only have to have one foot inbound to make a catch, but you have to have two in the pros. Well, the pros should be higher you know, harder. I think it's fine in college. It's kind of fun that it's only one foot in bounds, but there are a lot of sports rules out there. The baseball, they keep changing things. They got to figure out the overtime thing for football. As you might recall from just a couple of weeks ago, there were guys in the 49ers who didn't even know what the rules were for overtime because it's different in the postseason than it is in the regular season. And baseball has certain extra inning rules that are only for the regular season. They make things too complicated. I'm going to, I'm going to throw one more thing out there. I do like the replay rules. I think they get a lot more things right, whether it's college football, basketball, hockey, you can challenge. Connor Bedard of the Blackhawks had a goal the other night that was disallowed because the puck had crossed the blue line and the pass to him wasn't legal, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I like in basketball now. Now, in football, the ref puts on the microphone, it turns on the microphone, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, the official, and he explains the call. And sometimes it doesn't make sense, but it does help. They explain why the call was made or if the ruling was overturned. My favorite is in the NBA when they challenge stuff because the ref in the NBA then hits this little video thing and he leans right into the camera like he's breaking the fourth wall in an episode of Moonlighting. And then he'll say, 
player B on the Milwaukee Bucks. That was a flagrant foul. He shouldn't have done that. He's a bad man. We're going to put him in a timeout. That's two technical fouls. He's out of the game. Or they explain exactly why a call was overturned. It helps. It helps the fans in the stadium. It helps the fans watching on TV. In baseball, they do the review, and then the, the umpires just huddle around with the headsets, looking at the little screen or waiting here from New York. And then they just make a, a gesture and something, and they tell one guy to go back to first base or this guy's out, and they never explain why. And I think in baseball, they got to explain that rule because you're left in the dark. You're like, what the hell just happened? Okay, uh, final note before we take a break. Jimmy Kimmel, my friend of many years in an interview with the LA Times, said he's having a difficult night balancing scripts for a show and pitches for the 2024 Oscars. He's getting tired, and he says, I think this is my final contract. Now, he's got three more years at ABC. Uh, which had that would take him through, believe it or not, 23 seasons for Jimmy. And he says, you know, it might be time. By far the longest run of any late night host right now, as you might recall, Jimmy Kimmel started off with the man show, did radio before that. Then they had Jimmy Kimmel Live, which uh launched in 2003. And it was, I was there for a couple of those early shows. It was crazy. That was, you can look up some of this stuff on YouTube. They would, Guests were drinking. They had a bar backstage. The audience members were getting hammered. It was loose, raucous. They'd get a big guest like George Clooney, but then they wouldn't get a big guest for a week. Now, uh, Jimmy Kimmel's Live has evolved into probably the most traditional of the late-night talk shows. It's very reminiscent of the Johnny Carson, Jay Leno Tonight Show, whereas Jimmy Fallon's Tonight Show is a variety show, and that's fine, but you know Jimmy Fallon has to insert himself into everything. He does bits and crazy skits and they do remote broadcasts and all this stuff and it's all it's it's a variety show it's not a talk show he's not a good interviewer he's very good at a lot of the other stuff jimmy still does he does some funny bits and, and gags just like johnny carson did but essentially it's monologue comedy bit guest guest musical number and he's very very good at it i i think it's, he's become one of the better late night hosts he's very good at the oscars as well so i wouldn't blame him after 23 years you know it does become like this you know this groundhog day feeling and you're even when you are into the interviews you're talking to the same stars you know about project after project so with 21 years jimmy kimmel has the longest run right now a lot of the other shows uh tonight show with Fallon, late night with seth myers last week with uh last week tonight with john oliver are right around uh, the 10-year mark so if jimmy does decide to go and and do something else and do some other projects he's he's um He's already done a lot of stuff. He did an, uh, he's, I know he did a um, ESPN documentary about the New York Mets of the eighties. Uh, he has shepherded some of those cool live remakes they've done of sitcoms, like all in the family with, with Newcastle along with Norman Lear. So he's a real legacy television student as well as a, a great performer. So still in his fifties, he's going to do a lot more stuff, but I wouldn't blame him if he decided it was time to move on. Okay. Let's take a break. We'll talk about Portillo's and then we've got some new reviews. All right, we're going to talk about Portillo's. You guys know the drill here. They're known for their famous Chicago hot dogs with all the famous correct Chicago ingredients, right down to that poppy seed bun. But there's so much more. They got great burgers. You can get Italian sausage, Italian beef, amazing French fries, also some really good salads. Don't shortchange the salads at Portillo's. And then, of course, you top it off with the legendary, the one and only, chocolate cake. I know people who order the entire cake for birthdays and other occasions, but you can also get a 
a slice, which will probably last you two helpings because it's amazing. And always, of course, you keep the cake at room temperature. That's how they do it at Portillo's. That's how you want to consume it. Now, there are Portillo's in many locations across the country, but you can also order online and ship it via Portillo's.com. You can find a location near you, order online. Portillo's, P-O-R-T-I-L-L-O-S.com, Portillo's.com. We've got a new Apple TV Plus limited series. Man, Apple TV Plus has really come through in the last few years. They've got quite a library of original series and movies they've done. Um, this one's called Constellation. I'm very happy to be back home. But things are different. Astronauts go through things they don't understand. That's when people come unstuck. When I was up there, the only thing I could focus on was getting back to my daughter. I miss you, Mummy. Will you be careful up there? Mummy, who was that? That was you and me right before the accident. That was not me. Nana? Where is she? Who? I need to go back to her. <laughs> Do I seem the same to you? I just don't feel like you're my mom. It's a sci-fi space science fiction. It's got a little bit of 2001 A Space Odyssey, a little bit of Interstellar, even uh, reminiscent of a movie called Lucy in the Sky. It starts off, uh, Numi Rapace plays an astronaut, Joe Erickson, and she's on on the um, the ISS, the International Space Station. There's a big accident. She has to make her way home. So the first three episodes are a lot about her getting home. The rest of it, there's flashbacks to the space station, but much of it is about what happens once she is home because everything seems just a little bit off. Her daughter smells different to her when she hugs her. Uh, her husband seems to be surprised that that she's so happy to see him because they were going to get divorced just before she left on this mission. She has certain visions and memories that might not be reliable. And this happens with some other characters. They're shifting uh, points of view. And it all kind of plays off the known facts that we know that when you spend a lot of time in space, certain things can happen. You can have, um, you actually can grow a little bit taller. Your spine kind of expands. Uh, your eyes can uh, be damaged a little bit. And there are a lot of stories about, you know, especially astronauts spending a lot of time in space. You know, you're in the in the vastness of outer space, but you're in the claustrophobic atmosphere of, of the ship or the space station. You're with you're with only a few other people. So there are a lot of psychological issue, issues that come into play. Certain astronauts have talked about seeing things in outer space, hearing dogs barking, music. And it plays off of all of that and kind of plays into some conspiracy theories. Very Twilight Zone-esque because we're kind of in this in-between world. In one world, our, our leading uh, stars had one thing happen to them. And, and in another world, maybe they're not even alive anymore. Brilliantly done. Um, a little murky at times and probably didn't need all those episodes. But I'm still rec uh, recommending Constellation. That's Apple TV+. Plus. Now, there's a feature movie coming out on limited release. Uh, it was going to come out last fall, but then uh, the Taylor Swift uh, Eras Tour 
concert movie was going to come out on that date. So they wisely moved this back. It's called Ordinary Angels. God is here with us right now. And we are here with you. Something about that little girl without a mom sick and the family bled dry from all the hospital bills. I think I'm supposed to help. Hi, Sharon. Yes, ma'am. I just wanted to come by and give you this. I just made dinner if you want to stay. Would love to. What are you doing? I met this woman. She's a mess. Perfect. She'll fit right in. I'm going to put together a press kit for a corporate donations, that kind of thing. Smile. Girls, help your daddy out. Michelle will need to fly 700 miles to the children's hospital. Are you telling me we need a plane now? How exactly do you recommend we get a plane, Doc? I'll get you a plane, I promise. How did it become your responsibility to save her? Because I'm here. Because I can. This is, I, I, you know, they call these faith-based movies because there's some scenes in church and there's some praying and stuff, but it's really, it's not something that's hitting you over the head, uh, proselytizing or or saying you got to believe in one God or another. It's just, it's really, it's admittedly corny, but I'm, I am recommending this. I'm giving it three stars. It's based on a true story set in small town, Kentucky in the early 1990s. Hillary Swank plays uh, a hard partying hairdresser. And it's the early 90s, so you can imagine the hair and the outfit. She very much is leaning into her Kentucky accent. She's basically playing an Aaron Brockovich type. So she reads a story in the paper about a young girl who needs a liver transplant, and the family is deep in debt. And uh, the father is a widower because his wife has died. The father is played by Alan Richin. He's the guy from Alan Richson is the guy from Reacher, who's really good here. So it's all about how Hillary Swank's character kind of finds redemption. She's an alcoholic. She's estranged from her own son. Her life is kind of a mess, but then she finds a purpose in helping this family. And you know everything that's going to happen in this story, but it's kind of cool because it's all based on a true story of a town that rallied around this family and helped this little girl. And it, it the, the final scene, transplant becomes available. It's the worst snowstorm in Kentucky history. How are they going to get a helicopter from their small town? And it all really happened. You can see news footage of this. So it's ordinary angels. If you're in the mood for something that's just makes you feel good about the good that people can do, check out ordinary angels. Finally, I'm also recommending uh, Vegas, the story of Sin City. This is a, a CNN four-part series. It's called Vegas, the story of Sin City, four-part documentary. Pure entertainment. The showboys, the showgirls. To be a headliner in Las Vegas, that's what I want to do. They had the biggest entertainers in America. Elvis was an alien-like thing. He was so charming and so hot. The Rat Pack was at the top of their game in Las Vegas. The wives went to see Liberace while the gamblers went to gamble. This has become home. Didn't get better than these guys. Pure entertainment. The city has had a lot of booms. Bang! Bing! People were building fantasies. Let's run around in togas. Las Vegas really becomes the place where people in America went to party. And the only way you find out what you can't do is if you do it. It's unlike anywhere else in the world. Vegas, the story of Sin City. Premieres Sunday, February 25th at 10 on CNN. Uh, takes us through the ver you know, the, the various chapters in Vegas's history. And even if you've been there a few times, like I have, a few times, cough, cough. <laughs> 
uh, and you know read some of the books or you've seen even the fictional films such as Casino and Ocean's Eleven, even if you know a lot about Vegas, this is still a really great uh, four-part series. It goes all the way back to the 30s and talks about how not only was gambling legalized in Nevada, but, and we all know about those quickie weddings, right? But what I didn't realize is that in 1931, state laws and you know with uh, las vegas being the big biggest city in nevada in particular made it so that you could file for divorce after just six weeks of residency so a lot of women would go to vegas and stay there for six weeks and they could get a quickie divorce so in addition to the quickie wedding the quickie divorce became a big deal that was pretty controversial especially in the 30s and while you were there guess what they were starting to build casinos so you could blow off a little steam at the slots and the tables then it takes us through, uh, you know, the glory days of the 50s and 60s and the Rat Pack and all of that. And also touches on stuff that you don't see mentioned a lot in that Vegas was an old Western town. Uh, somebody in the documentary kind of describes it as sort of more like Mississippi back in the days in terms of racial mores. And there was a lot of segregation in Vegas. And you had huge entertainers like Nat King Cole and Sammy Davis Jr. and Lena Horne. And they weren't allowed through the front door. The, there were no blacks in the crowds. And uh, the only employees were what they call, you know, back of the house. In other words, housekeepers and stuff, not you no know, no blackjack dealers or showgirls. That all eventually changed. But even as late as the 60s, that was kind of a, a still a thing in Vegas. Series then continues on through uh, all the changes that Vegas has had. Because, you know, for a while there, it was kind of out of touch in the 60s and 70s where all this counterculture stuff was going on. Vegas was still you know, your mom and dad's destination place. They started making it more casual. They started bringing in, they brought in Elvis, and they brought in Tom Jones and Ann Margaret, uh, and eventually even tried to make it a family place for a while. There were all these theme parks. And what I love about the series is it shows how just Vegas keeps evolving. And they got cool graphics showing, you know, this casino would get imploded and then the bigger ones would come up. Howard Hughes started buying up things. Steve Wynn had even bigger visions with the Mirage and places like that, the Bellagio, and then there's even now the next level stuff in Vegas. Um, you know, the residencies for Cirque du Soleil and Celine Dion and Usher and a million other acts. Now the spheres there. They don't really get into that. It kind of ends before the, the last few years in Vegas. They don't talk about the, the Raiders moving there or that, the, that crazy sphere thing. But it's a very uh, thorough, comprehensive, entertaining series. It's called Vegas, the story of Sin City. It's coming to CNN. What happens in Vegas comes to CNN. All right. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate you listening. We'll be back again soon.